Hi, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. For our archive show this week, we're going to play a Boomer Boulevard episode that was first broadcast on October the 13th, 2014. Hope you enjoy it. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. part of the country is raining, but all is well. Our Cardinals are back in the playoffs for the National League Championship. Boy, I bet a lot of the country hates the Cardinals. They've they've played in the championship four years in a row now, and they've played in two of the last five World Series, or two of the last four World Series. And they're playing the Giants, and the Giants have been in the other two of the last four World Series. So how about that? So we'll see what happens here. Anyway, welcome everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to Boomer Boulevard. This is the old time radio show where we play shows we actually remember from when we were kids because we're baby boomers. But it, the show isn't just for baby boomers. It's for anyone that wants to listen and enjoy the entertainment that has a fondness for old time radio programs. We're glad to have you on board. Tonight we have a great show. We have an episode of Dragnet that I think you're really going to enjoy. We have an episode of The Halls of Ivy that's light and funny, and an episode of Gunsmoke that's serious and kind of violent. So that's what we have on tap for tonight, and it's all going to get started in just a minute.
right, to start things off tonight, we are going to listen to an episode of Dragnet that was originally broadcast on June the 26th in 1952 over NBC. 52 was sort of a pivotal year for Dragnet. You know, when the show first started on the radio, uh, Joe Friday's partner was Sergeant Ben Romero, and he was played by Barton Yarborough, that great Southern actor that played Doc in the original I Love a Mystery did a number of things for Carlton E. Morse. He was in One Man's Family. Then he did, oh, he just had a number of radio shows. Very prolific actor. Well, Yarbrough died as a fairly young man in 1951. And they wrote his death into the show by having Romero die. In fact, they named the episode that played, I think it was right after Christmas in 1951. They called it The Big Sorrow. And it talked about uh, Romero dying of a heart attack. Barney Phillips spilled in for a while playing uh, a character by the name of Sergeant Ed Jacobs. Then they had a couple actors playing uh, Officer Bill Lockwood. But it was in early 52, I guess it was in June 1952, they introduced Frank Smith, who became Joe's partner then until the show went off the air. Frank Smith was played for the first three months by Herb Ellis, and that's who we're going to hear tonight. And then in September of 52, The role was taken over by Ben Alexander, who had such great, great chemistry with uh, Jack Webb as as, uh, Joe Friday. Listen to um, the line of questions that Friday and Frank Smith ask this poor woman, who I think is played by Virginia Gregg, if I'm not mistaken. At any rate, listen to the questions. (laughs) Ask yourself if, if this is fair. We'll talk about it a little bit afterwards. Anyway, here we go from June 26, 1952. The big role is heard on Dragnet on NBC. The story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. detective sergeant. You're assigned a homicide detail. An unidentified man is abducted from a downtown street. The scene is checked where the man was reported taken. Bloodstains are found on the sidewalk. The abductors escaped in a gray sedan. No one saw the license number. Your job? Get him. documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Monday, March 18th. It was overcast in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of homicide detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Warman. My name's Friday. It was 6.48 p.m. when we got to the corner of 11th and South Pierce Street, the 797 Club. Sorry, no more service tonight. Closing up. Your name, Leon Morley? Yeah, I can't serve you any drinks, so closing up. Police officers, Mr. Morley. I'd like to talk to you a minute, if you don't mind. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought maybe you were after a drink. We were just talking to the officers in the radio car up the street, the car that answered the call out here tonight. They told us you're one of the people who saw what happened. Well, yeah, I guess I did. I saw part of it anyway. Lousy deal kind of thing makes your ulcers pop. That's why I'm closing down early, going home. We're following through on the investigation, Mr. Morley. I'd like to have you tell us everything you know about it, if you would, everything that you saw. 
I told the cops in the radio car everything I know. It was about six o'clock, and I heard this big commotion out in the street. I didn't know what it was. It sounded like somebody was hurt. I went out and took a look. Marie in the beauty shop next door, she was outside rubbernecking, too. She saw as much as I did. You talked to her? Yes, sir, we have. She wasn't too clear on some of the details. Maybe you can straighten it out for us. I'm glad to if I can. What do you want to know? You mind telling us in your own words just exactly how it happened? I mean, how you saw it? Well, there's not an awful lot to it. I was working behind the bar here, and it was around 6 o'clock, like I say, maybe a couple of minutes after. I was just fixing up a round of drinks for some fellows when I heard this noise outside. Yeah. Didn't know what it was at first. Sounded like somebody screaming like they were hurt. You said you heard this commotion outside the bar about 6 o'clock. Yeah, that's right. Well, I didn't go out right then. I finished mixing the round of drinks. First, I thought the racket was just a couple of early drunks, but it kept on. man screaming. It got louder, and I decided to take a look. Mm-hmm. I went out and looked down the street a couple of doors, down toward the corner. Which corner is that, Mr. Moore? Oh, the nearest one, down to the left. Here, I'll show you. All right, fine. I didn't know what was happening. It was a terrible sound. man screaming at the top of his lungs. You recognize who the man was? No, I didn't. Never saw him before. Didn't get too good a look at him anyway. It was getting kind of dark. Here, let me show you. Over here by the window. All right, fine. I see it was right down there, just next to that mailbox. Mm-hmm. Well, these two guys had a hold of the man who was screaming. They were trying to drag him into a car, a gray sedan. man was trying to fight him off. Can you describe any of these three men for us? No, I couldn't be sure about it. Like I say, it was getting kind of dark. Well, you can see for yourself they were about 75 or 100 feet away. Mm-hmm. This man they were trying to drag into the car, he kept screaming, Leave me alone, you can have the money. Leave me alone, you can have my car. Looked like he was hurt to me, blood on his clothes. Didn't anybody try to help him? Well, you know how this neighborhood is. When there's trouble, they all cut out. They don't want to get involved. Happened pretty fast anyway. These two guys got this man in the back seat of the car, and the big guy got in the back seat with him. The smaller guy got in the front seat, and they took off. Now, which way did they go, Mr. Morley? Uh, straight down the street there. They turned right at that corner. Mm-hmm. Did you happen to see the license number? No, I thought of it, though. They didn't turn the car lights on. It went by pretty fast, too. I couldn't get a good look at it. Was it a California plate, do you know? Oh, yeah, I noticed that much. That's about all, though. What kind of a car was it? Like I told you, a gray sedan, four-door. I couldn't tell the make. Fairly new car. Well, did you notice anything outstanding about the car? Anything at all? Well, I don't know. What do you mean, outstanding? Well, special markings of any kind. Anything unusual. Maybe some of the accessories. Spotlight? Anything like that? No, nothing I noticed. The rear bumper was bent out, I think. Matter of fact, I'm pretty sure of it. Rear bumper? Yeah. I saw it when they drove off. Uh, they drove right past the place here. Well, how about the men, sir? Can you describe them at all? No. One was pretty tall and thin. The other one was smaller. About the same build on the thin side. They sure must have worked that guy over. He was all bent over. Looked like he was holding his stomach. Stains all down the front of his suit. On the sidewalk, too. I guess you saw that. Yes, sir, we did. Now, you're sure that you've never seen any of these men before? Nothing familiar about them at all? No, sir, not to me. I think if I saw them before, I'd know it. Oh, just a minute. It's probably the wife. Excuse me. Be right back. Yeah, sure. What do you think, Joe? Well, it doesn't look too good. Stains on the sidewalk down there. If it was just a robbery, why'd they take the guy with him? Well, you got me. He possibly might have recognized him. Well, maybe you got some, but I hope you're wrong. If he can make the hoods, good chance you're not going to turn the man loose alive. Uh, Sergeant. Yeah. Uh, it's your office on the phone. I want to talk to either one of you. Oh, I'll get it, Joe. All right, thanks, Frank. Phone straight back, Sergeant. End of the bar. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Look, Sergeant, I got to have something to quiet my nerves. How about you? You want a drink? Yeah. No, no, thanks. Besides the woman in that beauty shop next door, Mr. Morley, did you notice anyone else around who saw what went on? No, as far as I know, Marie and I were the only ones. Just like I told you, when there's any trouble around this neighborhood, they get off the street quick. You can't think of anything else that might give us a break on this? Anything at all now? Wish I could. I think I told you just about everything. Sure feel lousy. Joe. Yeah. Just talking to Harry. Yeah. 181 found the car, gray sedan. Where'd they find it? Third and Bixel. It was empty. Keys still in it. You sure it's the right car? Bloodstains in the back seat.
7.18 p.m. Frank and I left the 797 Club, got in the car, and drove down to 3rd and Bexel, where the abandoned gray sedan had been located. It matched the same general description of the abductor's car, a four-door gray sedan, late model, with a damaged rear bumper. Dean Bergman from Leighton Prince dusted the car and succeeded in raising a half a dozen fingerprints, which he took back to the office for possible identification. The crime lab crew went over the car for additional physical evidence. The stains found on the back seat were identified as having been made by human blood. The white slip attached to the steering post showed the car was registered to a Kenneth L. Gorman at a Canal Street address. Before Frank and I left the scene, we got a report that approximately 20 minutes prior to the time the gray sedan had been located, another car had been stolen. It was a maroon, late model club coupe, licensed 7 Tom 7972. It had been taken in the same neighborhood, less than two blocks from where the gray sedan was abandoned. A broadcast and an APB was gotten out on it immediately. 8.05 p.m. After checking by the office, Frank and I drove down to check on the home address of the registered owner of the gray sedan, Kenneth L. Gorman. It was a white wood frame cottage at the upper end of Canal Street. The woman who answered the door identified herself as Mrs. Elsie Gorman, a small middle-aged woman, blue eyes, partially graying hair. No, I'm sorry, officers. My husband isn't home right now. Where is he, Mrs. Gorman? Do you know? Well, he went downtown to see a friend of his business appointment. Is it anything I can help you with? Are you expecting your husband home pretty soon, ma'am? Yes, I am. Matter of fact, he should have been home long before this. I don't know what's keeping him. Told me he was going downtown to collect some money a friend of his owed him. Said he'd be right back. I don't know what could be keeping him. When do you leave the house, ma'am? About 2.30, 3 o'clock this afternoon. It's almost 8.30 now. It could be he stopped to have a beer with his friend. He usually phones, though, if he's going to be late. I don't understand these men sometimes. You and your husband own a car, Mrs. Gorman? Yes, we do. <clears throat> My husband has it right now. Why? What kind of a car is it, ma'am? A 49 Chevy sedan. Gray color, four-door? Yes. License number 7T7972? Well, yes, I think that's it. Why? What's the matter? Something happened? Nothing to get worried about, Mrs. Gorman. We located the car in the downtown area parked on a side street. The keys were still in it. Thought we'd check on it. Where was it parked? Near 3rd and Bixel. Well, that can't be right. This man my husband was going to see has his store on Alameda. It's on Alameda between 9th and 10th. No reason for Kenneth to drive the car way down on 3rd Street. Well, possibly he might have had another business appointment down there, ma'am. Maybe something he didn't mention to you. Well, I don't know. I suppose it is possible. You'd think he'd call, though. He usually does when he's going to be out late like this. What about this man your husband was going to see, Miss Gorman? You happen to know who he is? Yes, Fred Bernard. He's in the sheet metal business, has his shop on South Alameda. He owed my husband $300. My husband went down this afternoon to collect it. He a friend of your husband's, is he? Oh, yes, they're good friends. Fred and my husband have done business for years. There wasn't any ill feeling between them about this debt? No, no, of course not. It was just a bill for some materials. Why do you ask that? Just routine questions, ma'am. Can you think of anyone at all who might have a quarrel with your husband? Somebody who has a grudge against him, maybe? No. Why are you asking questions like that? Is there something wrong? Something you're not telling me about? No, ma'am. It's just a routine check, Miss Gorman. Nothing to worry about. I want to make sure everything's all right, that's all. The way you talk, it isn't all right. It's far from right. Ken, it's never gone this long without calling me. There must be something wrong. Oh, you're getting yourself all worked up, ma'am. You admit your husband might have had another appointment after he left Bernard. By the way, have you checked with Mr. Bernard yet, ma'am? No, to tell you the truth, I haven't. I don't usually like to call my husband when he's out on business. I don't like to bother him. This is different, though. I think I'll call Fred Bernard right now. It's a good idea. Do you mind if we wait, ma'am? No, no, not at all. It'll only take me a minute. Excuse me. Yes, ma'am. What do you think? I don't know. 
Doesn't look too good, does it? Car's abandoned, stains in the back seat. Man's late in getting home. It's all there. Could be anything, couldn't it? Doesn't look good. Sergeant? Yes, ma'am. I just talked to Fred Bernard. He said my husband's been there and left. What time did he leave Bernard's? About 3.15, 3.30. Fred Bernard paid my husband the $300 he owed him, and my husband left. Fred told me my husband asked him if he wouldn't have a glass of beer with him, but Fred said no, he was busy. Uh-huh. So my husband said, all right, he was going to have a beer at home. Told Fred he was going right home. That was at 3.15 this afternoon. Yes, ma'am. There must be something wrong, I know it. It just isn't like my husband. He wouldn't leave the car like that. If he was late, at least he'd call me. Oh, would you excuse me again? I've had the dinner on the stove. Boiled away to nothing. I want to turn it off. Yes, ma'am, go right ahead. I hope it works out all right. Seems like a nice woman. Yes, yeah, she does. Sure doesn't figure, does it? He's had plenty of time to get home. No reason why he shouldn't be here by this time. Oh, I can think of two. Yeah? An empty car and $300. We continued interviewing the wife of the missing man, Kenneth Gorman, and she told us that occasionally he did some drinking at neighborhood bars. She also told us that when her husband drank quite a bit in public places, he was over-friendly and he liked to brag and flash money. Mrs. Gorman got on the phone, contacted all their friends and relatives who happened to be home, but none of them had seen or heard from Mr. Gorman that day. Before Frank and I left, Mrs. Gorman gave us a complete description of her husband, the clothing he was wearing, and also a recent photograph of him. We called Fred Bernard, the friend of the missing man, the last known person to see him, and told him that we'd like to talk to him. He told us that he was working late, getting out a rush order, and that we could find him in his shop. 9.05 p.m., we located Bernard at his shop on South Alameda. Won't take long, will it? An awful rush tonight. Won't take long, sir. Did Mr. Gorman give you any idea of where he was going when he left here this afternoon? No, just like I told his wife on the phone. I paid him the money I owed him. He asked me if I wanted a beer, took a rain check on it, and he left. Went right out that door there. You seem worried about anything, Mr. Gorman? No, not that I could see. He seemed all right to me. Had he been drinking, do you know? No, couldn't say. If he was, I couldn't smell it on him. Is there anything unusual about him at all? Anything out of the ordinary? No, same old Ken. Pretty good mood when I paid him. $300 cash. He's all dressed up. I guess you might call that unusual. How do you mean, unusual? Well, Ken's like me. Working man, not much of a dresser. Usually find him in working clothes. I think it's the second time I ever saw him in a suit. A new one, too. Looked nice on him. He didn't give you any indication at all where he might be going, did he? No, he just collected his money and went out. I thought maybe he was going home. Uh, what did Miss Gorman tell you? Didn't you have any idea where he is? No, sir. She told us he came down here to collect some money. She expected him right home. We're not trying to be nosy, Mr. Bernard, but how do Gorman and his wife get along? They're pretty happy together? Mm, yes, I guess you might say that. Get along as well as you could expect them to. What do you mean by that? Nothing. Ken's a... Well, he's a fellow who likes his nightlife. Wife's just the opposite, quiet type. Almost left him once. Guess they're getting along pretty good now, though. Why'd she almost leave him? Would you happen to know? Well, she find him out with a girlfriend. Matter of fact, she caught him at a terrible row. Didn't understand any of it. The girlfriend wasn't much at all. Real lush. You know the girl's name? Yeah, I met her twice. Name's Elaine something. As she works at a cafe three blocks from here. Real lush. She sure took it. You know if Gorman's been seeing her lately? Well, he says he hasn't been. I don't know. I never can tell when he's drinking, though. Didn't his wife mention the girl at all? No, I guess she wouldn't. It's been a terrible thing for her when she found out. Terrible. How long ago was all this, Mr. Bernard? I mean, this affair Gorman had with this girl. Oh, six weeks, maybe two months ago, just about that. I tell you, it was the queerest thing I ever saw. Ken has a nice, quiet wife of his at home, and they get along fine together, never fought, never quarreled. And he picks up with his girly lane, sure different. How's that? A real mean girl, two of them fought all the time. 
9.40 p.m. We left Fred Bernard at his shop, drove to the restaurant where Gorman's girlfriend reportedly was working as a waitress, and we checked with the manager. He told us a girl by the name of Elaine Summerall had been employed there, but that she'd been fired for drinking on the job. He also told us that he had reason to suspect that Elaine Summerall was not the girl's true name. We showed the cafe manager a picture of Mr. Gorman, and he identified it. He said Gorman had been in that afternoon inquiring about the Summerall girl. Gorman had asked for the girl's forwarding address, but the manager told us that he'd thrown it away. We left our card with him and asked him to contact us immediately in the event the girl returned. 10.18 p.m. We drove back to the city hall and checked in at the office. We ran the name and description of the Summerall girl through R&I, and they told us they had a Summerall girl in the files who answered the description. Elaine Summerall, alias Elaine O'Donnell, alias Elaine Shellman. There were wants out on her for forgery, three counts, and grand theft merchandise. We signed out of the office, went across the street to the federal cafe, and had a sandwich and a cup of coffee. It wouldn't look so rough if it wasn't for the stains they found in the back seat of that car. It's hard to get around. It points to more in robbery, doesn't it? Yeah, Mo sure strikes me pretty funny, pulling the man off the street like that. Must be either hard up or crazy, huh? Federal cafe. Just a minute. Friday? Yeah. Phone. Right, thank you. I'll be right back. Frank. Okay. Yeah, Friday talking. Yeah, Glenn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, where? How long ago? Yeah, I see, uh-huh. It wasn't, huh? Yeah, we'll roll on it right now. Tell them we're on our way in, will you? Yeah, right. Thanks, Glenn. Bye. Yeah? Chandler. They just found the maroon coupe, the one stolen in the neighborhood where Gorman's was dropped. Where'd they find it? Picked it off going up through Lancaster, Sheriff's deputies. Does it look good on our job? Well, there were two men in the car. One of them had a knife, bloodstains on their clothes all over the inside of the car. How's it figure? It doesn't. Not a scratch on either one of them. Monday, March 18th, 10.40 p.m. After we received the report that the stolen maroon coupe, along with the two suspects, had been recovered north of the city in the town of Lancaster, Frank and I stopped by the record bureau and checked to see if there was a make on either one of the suspects. The first one, Paul Mike, white male American, 32 years, 5 foot 11, 150 pounds, brown hair, brown eyes. He had a long felony record, including burglary and robbery. He'd served sentences in both San Quentin and Folsom, and there was a want on him for violation of parole. The second suspect, Floyd Compton, white male American, 34 years, 5 foot 8, 135 pounds, black hair, brown eyes. His record included arrests on suspicion of burglary, four grand theft merchandise, and three drunk arrests. He was a petty thief known to us as a shoplifter. He'd never served time in a penitentiary. 10.55 p.m., Frank and I, with identifying photographs of the two suspects, left the city and drove north. We checked in at the Lancaster Sheriff's Office substation. Captain Walker Hannon briefed us on the details of the arrest, and then he showed us back to the cell block where the two suspects were being held. He told us neither of the men had been questioned because the officers there weren't acquainted with the facts of the case. He also informed us both men had been separated from the time of their apprehension. Captain Hannon had Paul Mike taken from his cell, and he was brought to the captain's office where we started to question him. It went slow. I don't think I understand you, Sergeant. What's all the excitement about? You can answer that better than we can, Mike. Answer what? What do you want to know? The car, Mike, and the bloodstains. What about them? A little unusual, wouldn't you say? I don't know anything about any bloodstains. If they're in the car, I don't know how they got there. It isn't my car. Yeah, we know that. What about the stains in your clothes? Well, I don't know. We were sitting in the car there. Maybe the stains rubbed off on us. You got a cigarette? Only one thing wrong with that story, Mike. The stains are on the wrong side of you. All right, so I had a fight. Got hit in the nose. What's that, a law against it? I got a hunch, Mike. Yeah? You're lying. Where'd you get that car? I told you where I got it. Me and Compton were bumming a ride on San Fernando Road. This spook came along in the maroon coupe and gave us a ride. 
couple of miles this side of Lancaster. He stopped the car and got out. Said he'd be right back. Walked right out into the desert. That right? Yeah. Waited for him to come back. Waited a long time. Honked the horn, yelled for him. We finally gave it up. Matter of fact, Compton and me got a little scared. Thought maybe the car was stolen. I didn't want to get caught in a hot car. I'm an ex-con. I couldn't stand the heat. It's the truth. I'm squaring with you. What about the money, Mike? Huh? The money. They booked you in with $133 in your pocket. Oh, yeah. I got lucky in a crap game last night. I was pulling out. How about the pocket knife? Blood stains on it? You win that in a crap game, too? No, matter of fact, it was in the car. Found it right there on the seat. Big coincidence, Mike. Somebody leaves you a car, blood stains on the inside, stains on you and your partner. Pocket knife stains on that, too. You're on parole, leaving town without notice, driving a car you're not supposed to be driving, pocket full of money you got no way of accounting for. Face it, Mike. What do you mean? Face it, you're dead. Flag on your card now. Parole officer wants you. Now, how about the truth? What do you mean, the truth? I've told it to you. Now, come on. Let's save time for all of us, Mike. You've been around long enough. You've graduated. You know we're not going to buy that line. What line? How can I explain things to you? You won't believe me. I've told you nothing but the truth since I walked into this room, and you won't believe me. You got a cigarette? How do you account for the blood in your shirt? I told you. I had a fight. Guy hit me in the nose. Happened right down there in L.A. You can check it. Where did it happen? Bar. Downtown. There's a lot of bars downtown. Uh, Place on South Pierce. I go there sometimes. What's the name of it? 797 Club. Ask anybody in there. You said it happened tonight? Yeah, about 8 o'clock. Just before we cut out. Guy hit me right on the nose. Real rough one. You got a cigarette? What time did you say you had that fight? About 8 o'clock. You sure of that? Sure, why? You're not doing too well, Mike. Now what's the matter? We were at the 797 Club tonight. We talked to the owner. So what? We were there at 635. He locked the place up and went home at 645. He was sick. 797 Club? Yeah, that's right. Now, where were you at the time of the robbery? I want an attorney. I'm not saying anything else. Trying to frame me. Take me back to myself. Any way you want it, Mike. Let's go. Once they use telling the truth and they don't believe you. How about that cigarette? Captain, would you have the jailer return this one and bring in Captain? How about that? He couldn't tell the truth if it helped him. Hope we do better with his partner. Well, we're going to have to. We know we're on the right track. The big question is, what have they done with Gorman? Big guess. thousand places they could have dumped him between here and L.A. Oh, I hate to make book on his chances. Everything points to a killing, doesn't it? Mike looks like the one who could handle it. Come on in, come. Over here. Sit down. Here. My name's Friday. This is Smith, my partner. Hi. Branched out of your class, haven't you, Compton? Running in the big time here? What do you mean? We haven't done anything. Robbery, kidnapping, grand theft auto. You're moving pretty fast. Didn't Mike tell you? This guy gave us a ride. He stopped the car and walked away. We didn't steal the car. Thought the guy was lost. We drove in here to get help. Let's take it from the top. Where'd you spend the day? Who were you with? Mike. He stayed overnight with me. Both slept till about 2 o'clock, got something to eat, and went to his show. Got out about 5. What'd you do then? Went to this bar downtown. Didn't Mike tell you? You were with him, weren't you? Sure, I was with him. He'll tell you that. He did. And you didn't do anything wrong, did you? No. Then what are you worrying about? Let's forget Mike now. You level with us, will you? You're getting it straight. I didn't do anything. Mike says he can't stand another beef. Can't afford it. He's too up right now. I know that. We believe him, Compton. Mike's done too much time. He couldn't make another trip easy. We think he's telling us the truth. Well, so am I. What are you getting at, anyway? All right, now, let's get on the bandwagon while you can. We don't need you, Compton. If you talk or not, it doesn't make any difference. Just a minute. Can I talk to Mike? All right, we'll give it a try. Frank, you want to ask him? Yeah, okay. Be right back. Now, let's pick up where we left off. The blood stains on your clothes, stains inside the car. Where'd they come from? Mike told you, didn't he? Yeah, you tell us. What for? Why can't I wait till Mike gets here? All right, what about the money? You want to explain about that? Nothing to explain. I saved it. What kind of work do you do? Odd jobs around town, any place I can find them. You say you got up at 2, you had something to eat, you went to a show, and you got out about 5 o'clock. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. When did you go to the 797 Club? Right after the show, about 5 o'clock. How long did you stay there? About an hour. 
What, about 6 o'clock? Anything unusual happen while you're in the bar? What do you mean? Anything unusual, anything out of the ordinary. Oh, Mike and me sat there, talked, had some drinks. Pretty dead place. Decided to take off for Reno. Mike's got a friend up there, good friend. Thought maybe he'd get the both of us job. Captain? Yeah? Where's Mike? I told him you wanted to talk to him. He said he didn't want to see you. They took him out to feed him. Told me to tell you he'd see you in court. What do you mean, see me in court? I think you got it, Captain. We told you we didn't need you. Come on, we're tired. We're going to lock you up. Well, what'd he say? What'd he tell you? Oh, look, fella, we're tired. You wanted to go the hard way. All right, you'll get the answers in court. Well, what did he say? What'd he tell you? Come on, let's go. You should have known better. Mike's not going to ride your beef for you. He was in it all the way. It's his idea and it's his beef, not mine. I argued with him. I know he shouldn't have gone along crazy. Yeah, come on. It's the truth. The whole thing's Mike's. It's his knife, too. Met the guy in some bar and he was real high, talking about some dame he was looking for, a girlfriend. Guy bought us a couple of drinks, had a big roll of bills. Mike framed the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, he wanted to roll the guy. We left, got in the guy's car and drove with him way toward town. Mike was driving. I didn't know where he was heading for. All of a sudden, the guy says he wants another drink. Mike didn't want to stop, but he was making a racket. Finally pulled up by the 797 club. We got out. Then the guy changes his mind. He wants to go home. Mike tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't listen. Mike pulled a knife and cut him. Then he slugged the guy, and the two of us pushed him in the car and took off. Where'd you go from there? We cruised around till we found another car, Maroon Coupe. We clouded that one, dumped the gray sedan, and took off up this way. That's right. Look, it's the truth. I'll even tell you about the guy. What happened to him? You got flashlights in your car? The man's still alive? I don't know. He was when we left him. 1.45 a.m. The Lancaster Sheriff substation contacted the local emergency ambulance, and they were instructed to follow our car. Along with the suspect, Floyd Compton, Frank and I got in the car and headed south, following his directions. After several tries at locating the spot where Mike and Compton supposedly left their victim, we finally found where they'd parked their car on the side of the road. We got out and Compton led us back across a stretch of sand to a thick clump of sagebrush about 300 yards off the highway. The victim, Kenneth Gorman, was lying face down. His hands and feet were tied together. It was fairly evident that he'd lost a good deal of blood and that he was in a state of severe shock. He was placed on a stretcher and placed in the ambulance. All right, Compton, that's it. Let's go. Be real tough. Sure glad he ain't dead. Yeah, sure. Come on. Where are we going now? Back to the sheriff's office. Want to take your statement. Okay with me. Just one thing I want. One more thing. Yeah? That lousy Mike. I want to be there. I want to see him. How's that? Trying to load this thing on me. I want to see his face when you tell him. Can't wait to see it. Yeah, neither can we. The story you have just heard was true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On July 12th, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 84, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. Paul Mike and his accomplice, Floyd Compton, were filed on for violation of Section 209 of the Penal Code, kidnapping for the purpose of robbery, and Section 211 of the Penal Code, robbery in the first degree. They were also filed on for one count of grand theft auto. They were tried and convicted and received sentences as prescribed by law. Kidnapping for the purpose of robbery, where bodily harm is inflicted, is punishable by the death sentence or life imprisonment without possibility of parole. Robbery is punishable by imprisonment from five years to life. Grand theft auto is punishable by a prison term of not less than one nor more than ten years. The victim, Kenneth Gorman, finally recovered after more than three months in the hospital. Just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Brasher. 
heard tonight were Vic Perrin, Virginia Gregg, Sam Edwards. Script by Jim Moser. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking. Ladies and gentlemen, you may now read Dragnet every day on the comic page of your favorite newspaper. Please consult your local daily paper. King Size Fatima has brought you Dragnet, transcribed from Los Angeles. Adventure is yours tonight with Counter Spy on NBC. From June 1952, that was Dragnet and the Big Roll. And that one featured Herb Ellis as Frank Smith, the role to be taken over a couple months later by Ben Alexander. Just a couple program notes here. We won't dwell on these too long because we know that there's folks down in Delray Beach that have very short attention spans. Did you think that, uh, what was the criminal's name there, Uh, Paul Mike? Do you think that he really rolled over on his buddy there, Floyd Compton? Or do you think that uh, Joe and Frank just said that to squeeze information out of Compton? I'm just curious. Lancaster, California, that is a desert, desert town. And it's funny, for years, that was just no man's land up there. In fact, they put the Air Force Base up there where they trained all the astronauts. Uh, If you ever saw the right stuff, that all happened up there in Lancaster, California. Back when housing prices went through the roof in California in the late 60s, early 70s, people couldn't afford homes and they started moving out to the desert. And so places like uh, Palmdale and Lancaster, and then down in the lower desert, places like uh, Indio, well, just a number of these desert communities, which had just been nothing but sand for years, suddenly became uh, the areas of most growth. Uh, Communities sprang up there, large communities of thousands and thousands of people. A friend of mine, he and his wife lived in Woodland Hills, and when they bought a home, it was so expensive to buy in town that they went out to Lancaster. And he worked downtown at the gas company in downtown Los Angeles. And so every day he had like an hour and a half commute. Now, it wouldn't be nearly that far as the crow flies, but you're out in the desert. You got to get around the mountains and down into the basin. And it took him like an hour and a half each way every day. And a lot of people do that. But anyway, that's They were talking about the remoteness of Lancaster. The other thing was just that whole dialogue with that poor woman. My goodness, they just come in here and ask all these questions. And then they act like it's just routine questioning. No reason for you to get upset, ma'am, you know. Does your husband ever come home with lipstick on his shirt collar that doesn't match any shade that you have? Just asking questions here. Just, Just need the facts. Does uh, does your husband ever run around with known criminals? Has he ever talked about anyone that's committed murder? You know, this poor woman, what? What are you talking about? What's going on? Why are you asking me these questions? No, no, ma'am, don't, don't get excited. These are just routine. Did, does your husband keep any weapons in the house? Does he have a large machete? How about a double-bladed axe? Anything like that? It's just crazy. Just crazy. 
that was sort of a hallmark of Dragnet. They'd come in and ask these leading questions, horrible questions that make these people think all kinds of strange things. And then just tell them, well, it's just routine questioning, ma'am. Nothing to get excited about. Oh, well, that's one of the things that made Dragnet great. And, of course, we will have more episodes of Dragnet in the weeks ahead. Okay, time for some music. Let's let's do some memory-type music, huh? This is the time of year when the leaves start to fall and the colors change. It starts getting cooler. We're certainly having that here in Missouri now. We've had a couple days of rain. I'm recording this on October the 10th, Friday evening, and it's raining outside right now. Very, very cool. And uh, it's a pretty time of year, but it's just kind of the time of year that makes you reflective. Tommy's selling used cars, Nancy's fixing hair. Harvey runs a grocery store and Margaret doesn't care Jerry drives a truck for Sears and Charlotte's on the make And Paul sells life insurance and part-time real estate Helen is a hostess, Frank works at the mill Janet teaches grade school and probably always will Bob works for the city and Jackson Lab Research And Peggy plays organ at the Presbyterian Church And the class of 57 had his dreams We all thought we'd change the world with our great works and deeds Or maybe we just thought the world would change to fit our needs the class of 57 has dreams. Betty runs a trailer park. Jan sells Tupperware. Randy's on an insane war. Mary's on welfare. Charlie took a job with Ford. Joe took Freddie's wife. Charlotte took a millionaire. And Freddie took his life. John is big in cattle, Ray is deep in debt. Where Mavis finally wound up is anybody's bet. Linda married Sonny, Brenda married me. And the class of all of us is just part of history. And the class of 57 has dreams. But living life day to day is never like it seems Things get complicated when you get past 18 But the class of 57 has dreams Oh, the class of 57 has dreams That was the Statler Brothers. They had a lot of great songs that talked about memories. Here's another one that I really like. Saturday morning, serials, chapters 1 through 15. Fly paper, penny loafers, lucky strike green. Flat tops, sock tops, Baker, Pepsi please. 
This week, we're going to go back to Ivy College, and we're going to listen to an episode of the Halls of Ivy, originally broadcast on April the 14th in 1950. This is sort of a lighthearted episode, but it does uh, talk about the rewards we get for being good. And of course, it stars two of everybody's favorite radio actors, Ronald Coleman and Benita Hume, his real-life wife. Ronald Coleman was just perfect for the role of William Todd Hunter Hall, the president of Ivy College in the little college town of Ivy. 
He had the urbane, intelligent, English sound of upper-crust manners. His wife, of course, played by Benita Hume, his real-life wife, was Vicky. Her background was as a former British stage actress. And so the pair was a great example of opposites that attract one another. There was also, of course, a fine radio cast that uh, made up both Ivy's College uh, Board of Directors and also the kids on the campus, and also a very funny maid from year to year. So here we go back to 1950, Mrs. Foster's Lost Dog. And now, The Halls of Ivy. That surround us here today And we will not forget Though we be far, far away Welcome again to Ivy Ivy College, that is, in the town of Ivy, USA You know, many people think of a college president as a man who spends most of his time worrying about his school's financial situation. Now, this is a profound misconception. A college president does not worry about money most of the time. He worries about it all the time. And Dr. William Todd Hunter Hall, the president of Ivy, is no exception. At the moment, he and Mrs. Hall, the former Victoria Cromwell of the English stage, are in a taxi on their way to a dinner party at which Dr. Hall is to be the guest of honor. Mrs. Millicent Foster, their hostess, is very wealthy, and an endowment is in sight. Mrs. Hall says, I do like dinner parties. I wonder what the main course will be. Main course? Me. (laughs) Uh, There is nothing Mrs. Foster likes to serve her guests so much as a celebrity, major or minor. (laughs) She should be very happy this evening, then. In your black tie, you're quite a tasty dish. (laughs) Thank you. But not as tasty, I'm afraid, as the major celebrity she originally intended to have tonight. He disappointed her at the last moment. Oh? How? Yes, he led with his right, was knocked out in the sixth round, and thereby ceased to be a major celebrity. (laughs) Uh, She was forced to settle for a college president. Oh, poor woman. She is not, thank heavens, a poor woman. She's one of the richest in town, and one of the loneliest. That's why she fritters away so much of her wealth on trivialities. I've been trying for over a year to guide her interests into more constructive channels. Like, say, um, gymnasium constructive or library? Yes, exactly. I have a feeling that when we leave tonight, I'll have a nice fat endowment check in my pocket. I have the same feeling. Mr. Merriweather told me you'd made a very great impression on her. Yes, I suppose I have. I mean to say I I have some... uh, Respectable degrees, and I've written a few good books. Uh, it's your good looks that have impressed her, not your good books. Oh, nonsense. <laughs> nonsense, Victoria. <laughs> I never, never heard anything so ridiculous in my life. <laughs> uh. <laughs> good looks. <laughs> Me. <laughs> you really think so? <laughs> I do, and I'm not the only one. Every co-ed on the campus is mad about you. <laughs> you're, you're just saying that. <laughs> really? <laughs> this is as far as I can go. Driver, you took the words right out of my mouth. 
<laughs> Sorry, folks, there's a detour. I didn't know nothing about the roads under construction. Oh, will it take us much out of our way? Uh, about eight miles, uh, approximately. We'd have to go over that bridge and all the way around. How long will that take? Almost 15 minutes, nearly. Mm, it's ten of eight now, and Mrs. Foster's very fussy about punctuality. Suppose we walk the rest of the way, Victoria. All right. Uh, driver, how far are we from 383 Hyacinth Road? Merely 12 blocks, only. Well, uh, I don't mind walking if you think we can make it by eight. Oh, we can do it easily. All right, here you are, driver. Uh, keep the change. Oh, thank you. Do we just walk straight ahead? We've never been out this way before. Uh, just uh, straight ahead, almost. You can't miss it, but there are long blocks, and you better walk fast if you want to be there by eight, practically. Thank you. Well, let's hurry, Victoria. Mr. Merriweather, the entire Board of Governors, in fact, has told me how insistent Mrs. Foster is that her guests arrive on time. Oh, don't worry, Toddy. Twelve blocks in ten minutes. We'll be there by eight. It's only that I don't want anything to mar the impression I've made. The Board is rather counting on me to bring her into the fold of donors. <laughs> I hope that we... Well, what a, what a revolting-looking animal. I Look, look, Victoria. Have you ever seen such a, such a mongrel in your life? It seems to be all the dogs ever bred wrapped up into one. Oh, I find it rather appealing, the way he just sits there looking at us. It's almost like Napoleon in that comic strip. May we stop for a moment to pet it? All right, well, one, one pet only, if you don't mind, darling. No time for more. <laughs> oh, no, it is affectionate, isn't it? Oh, you're happy to see us, aren't you, you dear fellow? Yes, you are. Yes, you certainly are, Uh, Vicky, I hate to interrupt this passionate courtship, but... If we're late, we're liable to lose a large endowment. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. We are. Yes, we are. Oh, oh, sorry, darling. Goodbye, dog. I think it's lost. It had a collar around its neck, but no license. Oh, it probably belongs to the house just behind this wall. Is fed a dozen times a day, and on the whole, lives much better and more securely than the average instructor. Mm. No, I think it's lost. Well, what makes you think so? Because it's following us. Seems to have no place in particular to go. Go home, sir. Go home. Perhaps it's a female. Well, go home, sir, or madam, as the case may be. <laughs> oh, look, he's doing all his tricks for us, sitting up and rolling over. Oh, he won't be a precious old smarty pants, aren't you? <laughs> uh, Victoria, please. Darling, uh, don't encourage him. We, we down, sir. Down, sir. Down, down. Oh, he, he only wants to kiss you. Uh, Victoria, no one can accuse me of being uh, anti-dog, but any desire I have to be slobbered over by a mongrel stray at this particular moment is so small that it borders on the microscopic. We simply haven't the time. Now, I, I've got to chase him away. Don't be startled. I'm going to shout at him. Go away. Go away. allez on. Gainsey Vick. Scram. That did it. Look at him run. Now, please, let us hurry, Victoria. Well, hope he'll be all right. Of course he will. He was all right for years before we came along, and there's no reason to suppose he won't be all right for years after we've departed. Might be run over or something. Well, it simply isn't our problem. I'm sorry if I seem callous, but in wangling an endowment, a certain ruthlessness is necessary. Oh, oh, Toddy. You don't suppose he's been hit? 
Of course he hasn't been hit. I'm sure he hasn't been hit. I mean, aren't you? I have a queer feeling in the pit of my stomach. I mean, he was so alive just a minute ago. If you were by any chance... Um... But, but it's, it's late. Yeah. We're going to be late. We... We... We'd best go back and see if he's all right. Harry, take my hand. This is ridiculous. As much as a million dollars waiting for me and I'm running in the opposite direction. I've had nightmares like this. Well, it, it may not be as much as a million. Well, even if it's only half a million, it's ridiculous. How will we get him to a vet? Well, ask the people in one of these houses to drive. Hold it, hold it, Victoria. Hold it. Oh, you're safe, aren't you? You're frightened us, Victoria. Oh, thank you. You said you're frightened us. Oh, yes, 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 yes. I... What seems to be the trouble? Uh, that dog annoying you? No, not at all, officer. No, he's a very friendly dog. Too friendly, in fact. He's been following us for the last ten minutes, and it seems likely to go on ad infinitum. Uh, I, I mean, he seems likely to go on endlessly. I know what ad infinitum means, mister. What makes you think I don't? Oh, I, I, I beg your pardon. What makes you think I don't know what ad infinitum means? Simply because I'm a policeman doesn't mean I'm an ignoramus. Well, I, I'm sure my husband had no intention. It may surprise you to learn that I have a degree in police administration from Fordham University. Oh, if I, if I seemed patronizing, I'm sorry. I... Uh, it's just that I'm tired of people who have a stereotype conception of a policeman. How would you like it if people had a stereotype conception of your job? Well, as a matter of fact, they have. My job is teaching. <laughs> I, I don't have to tell you how many jokes I hear in the course of a year about absent-minded professors. Doesn't it get you down? <laughs> Little kid called me a flatfoot yesterday. My feet happen to be perfectly arched. I could show you. <laughs> yes, I, I know what you mean. You know, there was a newspaper editorial last week in which teachers were called long hairs. Oh, I, I leave it to you. Is my hair long? Yeah, uh, William, I don't want to interrupt this coffee clutch, but it's getting very late. Oh, yeah, yeah, yes, of course. Um, officer, this dog seems to be lost. Have you any idea where it belongs? Well, I'm new on this beat. I have no idea whose dog it is. Uh, oh, well, my wife is afraid, and I am too, that it may be run over unless someone takes care of it. May we place it in your hands? What would I do with it? I have eight more hours before I'm relieved. The sergeant drives past to check up on me, finds me walking a dog. I'm liable to wind up patrolling way out of Marie Antoinette Plaza, near the garbage dump. <laughs> uh, why don't you take it with you? Uh, well, we're on our way to a dinner party, and if we came with a stray dog... Uh, it... I see what you mean. It would be, shall we say, outré. Uh, how, how was that? Uh, oh, oh, yes, uh, outré, of, of course. Yes, it, it would be très outré. <laughs> I, uh, can't you be persuaded to look after it for a few hours? It, it'd keep you amused. I'm afraid amusement isn't what I'm here for. Look at that. I just ended a sentence with a preposition. Shows you how careless a man gets after he graduates. Oh, it's considered proper usage these days in some quarters. You don't say? Yes, as a colloquialism. Oh, I can't say that I approve. Uh, I am a purist. Yes. So am I. Uh, particularly when it comes to grammatic construction. I agree. As a matter of fact, I devoted an entire chapter to it in my book, Grammar and Its Effect on Social Behavior. Oh, I've read that. Did you write Boys, that? Boys, please, we're terribly late. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. Good heavens, look at the time. It's past eight. Um, officer, what should we do? 
Forget about it. It's not your problem. Exactly what I said a few minutes ago. Now, come on, Victoria. The dog catcher will probably pick it up tomorrow. Exactly. We can... The dog catcher. What'll he do with it? Take it downtown to the pound. The pound? Well, isn't that where they... Well, what'll they they do there? Oh, he's washed, combed, fed, kept very comfortably for one week. And after that? You mean if no one claims it? Yes. Sic transit gloria mundi. (laughs) Oh, no. You mean it's done away with? Oh, no, Toddy. Oh, surely there's some alternative. Oh, there is. Take the dog by the scruff of the neck and march him from house to house. All right, officer, we'll try it. Good night, lady. Good night. Uh, Good night, officer, thank you. Uh, ever read Senator Fell's tribute to his dog? Yes, yes, I have. Fine rhetoric, don't you think? Yes, fine, fine. Oh, fine. William. Uh, yeah, yes, dear. Night. Good night. What are we going to do? Do? I'll show you. Come here, come here, Robert. Come here. You know what I'm going to do with you? I'm going to find your home. Now, Mrs. Foster is not going to like it, sir. Do you know what it's apt to cost me to get you home? A million dollars. Yes, it is. A million dollars. Yes, it is. A million, a million, a million. Yes, 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 it is. As we return to the halls of Ivy, we find a rather irritated Dr. Hall walking with Victoria and a huge, friendly, very lost dog in the general direction of the home of Mrs. Millicent Foster, at whose dinner party he's supposed to be guest of honor. They are now almost a half hour late. They go up the steps of a small residence. I do feel ridiculous, Vicky. I'm not exactly dressed for the sheep's head field trials, you know. Well, never mind, darling. Neither is Fido. Yes? I beg your pardon, but does this dog belong to you? We were just... Mister, uh... nothing belongs to me. I'm being evicted tomorrow. (laughs) Well, we might as well find a home for him, too. Oh, how do you do? Good evening. We were wondering... Yes, I know. Thank you for coming so promptly. Our own doctor is out of town or we wouldn't have bothered you. We never expected it so soon, of course. But we were just trying to... Uh, But you're just a tiny moment late. The ambulance got here first. Ambulance? Yes, the baby's due any second. She's at St. Vincent's Hospital, doctor. Oh, what a lovely dog you have. Good night. Oh, well. Good evening. How do you do? Have you lost a dog? No, but I'd like to. (laughs) You don't quite understand. We found a dog. Are you from a quiz program? Uh, no, but we, we have a dog here and we don't know where he lives. Well, ask him, mister. Ask him. I'm busy. (laughs) 
penny for them, Toddy? I'm thinking that Fido here is no ordinary dog. In fact, I suspect he's been planted here by some rival in competition for Mrs. Foster's doe. Uh, excuse me, endowments. Harvard, perhaps, or Yale. We've covered the entire area and couldn't even give him away. Some people are very callous to other people's plights. Am I to go through life dogged by this... this dog? <laughs> the ancient mariner with an albatross round his neck? Well, don't be bitter, darling. You've done a good deed so far, and I love you for it. Remember, virtue is its own reward. Yes, I can see myself explaining that to the board. <laughs> No, I didn't manage to get an endowment last night, gentlemen, but I was kind to an animal. Uh, they're not likely to canonize me for that and call me St. William. <laughs> no, I suppose not. A dog. Man's best friend. <laughs> Another myth exploded. Vicky, you've more influence with this, this monster than I am. Make him stop doing tricks. You can talk to him. Well, shall I tell him to go away? Uh, no, no, no. Better not. We may very shortly require a performing dog to help us earn our bread. <laughs> when we're out with a tin cup. <laughs> well, anyway, Mrs. Foster is never going to believe our story unless he's with us. There's a car coming down the driveway. Toddy, be careful. Hey, Rover, come here. There's a good chap. Well, it looks like Mr. Wellman's limousine. Oh, is our chairman of the board to be a guest of Mrs. Foster's this evening? Well, not that I know of, but he's never been known to miss a free meal in his life. <laughs> is that you, Mr. Wellman? Dr. Hall, are you aware, sir, that you are more than one half hour late? I am, and I'm very sorry, I assure you. I shall make what I hope are adequate apologies to Mrs. Foster and the other guests at the dinner party. Dinner party? There is no dinner party, not anymore. Oh? Mrs. Foster begged her guests to excuse her and retire to her room. Oh, my. She was extremely upset, and I don't blame her. I would be, too, if a guest of honor at one of my dinners failed to make an appearance, failed even to have the courtesy to telephone... Oh, Mr. William, we, we had a perfectly good explanation. Well, perfectly good may be too strong a term, but at least it's an understandable one. On the way here, we encountered this dog, which appeared to be lost. Indeed. And have you taken the position of dog catcher as a sideline? <laughs> ah, the dog seemed to be lost, and we feared it might be run over by an automobile. Not taken to the pound and destroyed. So we tried to learn where it belonged. You should have spent a bit more time considering where you belong. You belonged at Mrs. Foster's dinner party. Do you know what she did uh, just before I left? She tore up a certified check made out to the school. No. Tore it into tiny pieces right before my eyes. A, a check for $100,000. Oh, no. Yes. Needless to state, I am far from happy at this turn of events. Uh, I think events would have to turn a complete somersault for you ever to be happy, Mr. Wellman. <laughs> Nevertheless, I am not bubbling over with happiness myself. I think you are very heedless, Dr. Hall. I'm of the opinion the rest of the board will agree with me. I don't wish to discuss the matter any further tonight. There is no necessity for you to go on to the house. Mrs. Foster has gone to bed. Well, I shall still try to see her to tender my apologies. You're wasting your time, Dr. Hall, again. Good night, Mr. Wellman. Good night. Carry on, Pearson. Well, that's that. I'm very sorry, not only for the money, but because I rather like Mrs. Foster and never intended to offend her. Perhaps she'll understand your explanation and even agree that you acted for the best. Fine words, butter, no parsnips. But a soft answer turneth away wrath. You, you really think I can make her understand? Oh, you know as well as I do that when you set your mind to it, you can charm a bird right out of a tree. <laughs> the charming Mrs. Foster out of a high dudgeon may prove a bit more difficult. She may only be in a low dudgeon. Uh, I can't remember when I approached a dinner party with so much anxiety. <laughs> I can. 
That dance at the French Embassy in London. When you were first courting me. Which was a long time ago. Do you remember it? Yes, of course I remember. It was the ball to which I had not been invited. Oh, you were invited. At least I was, and I invited you. I don't think I ever felt so unsure of myself. I almost ran away as we approached the embassy building. <laughs> if you hadn't been on my arm, I think I'd have bolted. I never was more nervous in my life. Tardy, stop worrying and fidgeting with your tie. Uh, are you, you sure? You're sure I look all right? These evening clothes aren't mine, you know. I had to rent them, even these cufflinks. You look extremely handsome and distinguished. Oh, I wish I felt that way. Actually, I feel something like uh, Cinderella. <laughs> uh, try, try not to be alarmed if at midnight these tails and white tie vanish as you see me standing there in shorts and a pumpkin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I shall carry it off with all the savoir-faire at my command. I shall say to one and all, my dear, haven't you heard? It's the latest rage in America. <laughs> of course, I realize no one's going to notice me. You're so beautiful this evening, everyone will be looking at you. Oh, no, not. Not really. But I feel beautiful when you look at me like that. I... Oh, dear. What, what, what is it? What? Your opera hat, it's collapsing. Oh, no. It's floating like a tarred pretzel. Oh, it's been deflating all the evening. Oh, you seem to be balancing an untidy pancake on your head. I told the man something was wrong with it. Oh, Vicky, let's turn back. It's not just my topper. All my clothes. Oh, Toddy, were. stop it. Except for that hat, which you can carry. Mm. You're impeccably dressed and you're going to have an amusing and interesting evening. Stop worrying now. You disarrange your tie with your fidgeting. Here. Let me fix it for you. Yes, ma'am. That's the oddest thing about your eyes, Vicky. They change color. Sometimes they're as blue as a lake in the Adirondacks, than which nothing is bluer. But at this moment, your eyes are almost violet. I keep a large variety on hand. A little woman comes in and makes them for me at three shillings an hour. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there. Try not to touch that tie again. I wish we had known each other longer. Two years instead of two weeks. Two weeks and two days. If we had, you'd know by this time that I'm not always like this. That I enter most situations with a certain aplomb. It's just that an embassy ball is rather a rich and sudden change of diet. For a college professor on a sabbatical. After your first taste, you'll lap it up and come back for more. I'm not so sure of that. You know, this is very different from a social gathering at home. There, I have the confidence and assurance of being known and in good standing. But here, among these old titles, these medals, decorations, these shining rewards of a great empire for distinguished services... It's frightening. No, it's not frightening, William. It's really very gay. And yours, as much of a knight in armor as any of them. And as for titles, my dear, don't forget that to me, you're William the Conqueror. What? What was that you said? No, 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 don't, don't knock yet. We can't afford another no. moment's delay. We're late. Ah, oh, let the ambassador wait. I want you to say that again. Ambassador? Now, Toddy, what are you talking about? We're late for Mrs. Foster's party. Mrs. Who? Mrs. Foster, Mrs. Foster. What? Oh, oh, Mrs. Foster. Oh, 
tardy, where were you? Uh, at an ambassador's ball in London, my dear, with a pretzel on my head. Oh, darling, this is no time for daydreaming. Time? Oh, oh, good heavens, no. We've got to apologize to Mrs. Foster. Well, stay here with me, then. Uh, good evening. Good evening. Is Mrs. Foster at home? Dr. and Mrs. Hall calling. No, 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 wait, please. Don't, don't shut the door. We wish to see her to apologize Mrs. for... Mrs. Kirby, someone for me? Yes, madam. Oh, Dr. Hall. And Mrs. Hall. Uh, we would like to apologize, Mrs. Foster. That will be all, Kirby. Yes, madam. Mrs. Foster, we are so sorry you've been upset. Upset? Oh, believe me, such a thing was furthest from our thoughts. Please. You seem to have a positive genius for milk and water words. How would you feel if your guest of honor for the evening not only failed to appear, but didn't even notify you? It was indicative of a contempt you must feel for the help I could have given you. Oh, no, no, I assure you. It was really the last straw. Your discourtesy on top of everything else. As though I weren't already caring as much as a mortal could be expected to bear. The last straw? Pete. He's lost. Ran away. Disappeared. Oh, you wouldn't understand. Pete. He, he's not by any chance a dog. He's not just a dog. He's my dog. I've had him for years and suddenly he's... Not a raw-boned, flop-eared, bushy-tailed... Yes. Yes. Have you seen him? Seen him? Mrs. Foster, he's the reason we're late. What? We were trying to find his home for him. We, we, uh, one moment. One. Pete, Pete. Dr. Hall, you, oh, Pete. It is Pete. Oh, all right. You bad dog, where have you been? I thought you'd been stolen or killed. Uh, Dr. Hall, Pete may not look it, but he's a very rare and valuable dog. I can't tell you how valuable. <laughs> if it were anyone of less consequence than you, Dr. Hall... I should offer him a large cash reward. You would, Mrs. Foster? <laughs> well, uh, if I may make a suggestion. I was curious. I tasted it. Now I know why Schlitz is the beer that made Milwaukee famous. Now here again are Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman. Ah, wasn't that wonderful, Toddy? For rescuing her dog, Mrs. Foster gave you an extra $50,000 for the college. The reward of virtue. Oh, no virtue of mine. You might just as well give credit to the town planning commission. If the road hadn't been under repair, we wouldn't have had to walk and wouldn't have seen the dog. Why not thank the taxi driver? He told us to take the shortcut where we found the dog. Or the policeman. If he'd taken the dog as we wanted him to, Mrs. Foster would never... Or have... the horrible man who drove the car that frightened the dog. Or the beautiful wife of the horrible man who drove the car that frightened the dog. No, Toddy, Toddy. Dinner's on the table. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, my dear. Good night, everyone. Good night. We'll be seeing you next week at this time at the Halls of Ivy, starring Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman. The other players were Herbert Butterfield, Janet Scott, Jane Morgan, Herbert Vigran, Jack Crucian, and Jerry Hausner. Tonight's script was written by Walter Brown Newman and Don Quinn. Our music was composed and conducted by Henry Russell. The Halls of Ivy was created by Don Quinn, directed by Nat Wolf, and presented by the Joseph Schlitz Brewing Company of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Next, listen for We the People over most of these NBC stations.
you don't have to listen to that show very long to realize how much those two liked each other. Every time I listen to that show at the Halls of Ivy, it just puts a smile on my face and it stays there for the whole 30 minutes. I find that the conversation, the dialogue between uh, Ronald Coleman and Benita Hume is still fresh and, and, and funny today, even after all these years. They really worked well together. I'm sure that they just must have really enjoyed going to work. There's a Pepsi helps supply the drive It's got a lot to give to those who like to live Cause Pepsi helps them come alive It's the Pepsi generation Coming at you going strong Put yourself behind the Pepsi There were some commercials that you absolutely loved the music, and that was one. I often wish they would have made a single of that. Remember, Coca-Cola did make a single. I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle doves. I like to teach the world to sing, sing with me. The great thing about that tune is it not only was great music, but it caught the attitude. That was 1971, and of course that was when everything was peace and love, and it really caught caught that. And, and uh, boy, that became a popular, popular uh, commercial. And then I think the New Seekers made a single of it. Of course, they took the Coca-Cola out of the out of the lyrics, but oh boy, here's another one that uh, really had a catchy tune that I remember every time it came on TV, we would always turn the sound up because we just loved the tune. Snap, what a happy sound. Snap is the happiest sound I've found. You may clap, rap, tap, slap, but snap makes the world go round. Snap, crackle, pop, rice krispies. I say it's crackle, the crispy sound. You gotta have crackle or the clock's not wound. Geese cackle, feathers tickle, bells buckle, beats pickle, but crackle makes the world go round. Snap, crackle, pop, rice krispies. I insist that pops the sound. The best is missed unless pops around. 
around. You can't stop hopping when the cereal's popping. Pop makes the world go round. Snap, crackle, pop, Rice Krispies. Okay, now here's the go best part. for Kellogg's Rice Krispies. Snap, it's crackle, what a happy sound. You gotta have a crackle as a sound not bound. You can't stop hopping when the cereal's popping. Snap, crackle, pop, makes the world go round. Oh, wasn't that great? While we got things up-tempo, here was a really funny song by uh, a guy that had a showroom in Branson for a number of years, and uh, we got to see him down there. Well, when I was a kid, I'd take a trip every summer down to Mississippi, visit my granny and her antebellum world. I'd run barefooted all day long, climbing trees, free as song. One day, I happened to catch myself a squirrel. Well, I stuffed him down in an old shoebox and punched a couple holes in the top. When Sunday came, I snuck him into church. I sitting way back in the very last pew, showing him to my good buddy Hugh. When that squirrel got loose, went totally berserk. What happened next is hard to tell Some thought it was heaven, some thought it was hell But the fact that something was among us was plain to see As the choir sang, I surrender all The squirrel ran up Harv Newland's coveralls And Harv leaped to his feet and said Something's got a hold on me, yeah! The day the squirrel went berserk In the first self-righteous church In a sleepy little town of Pascagoula It was a fight for survival That broke out in revival They were jumping pews and shouting Hallelujah Well, Harv hit the out dancing and screaming Some thought he had religion Others thought he had a demon And Harv thought he had a weed eater loose And he screwed the looms He fell to his knees to plead and beg And that squirrel ran out of his britches leg Unobserved to the other side of the room all the way down to the amen pew Where sat Sister Bertha better than you Who'd been watching all the commotion with sadistic glee <laughs> Should've seen that look in her eyes When that squirrel jumped her garters and crossed her thighs She jumped to her feet and said Lord have mercy on me As that squirrel made laps inside her dress She began to cry and then to confess the sins Make a sailor blush with shame she told of gossip and church dissension But the thing that got the most attention Was when she talked about her love life And then she started naming names The day the squirrel went berserk In the first self-righteous church In that sleepy little town of Pascagoula It was a fight for survival That broke out in revival They were jumping pews and shouting Hallelujah Seven deacons and the pastor got saved And $25,000 was raised And 50 volunteered for missions in the Congo on the spot <laughs> And even without an invitation There were at least 500 rededications And we all got rebaptized whether we needed it or not Now you've heard the Bible story, I guess How he parted the waters for Moses to pass All oh, the miracles God has wrought in this old world one I'll remember till my dying day is how he put that church back on the narrow way with a half-crazed Mississippi squirrel. The day the squirrel went berserk in the first self-righteous church in that sleepy little town of Pascagoula. It was a fight for survival that broke out in revival. They were jumping pews and 
shout hallelujah. And the day the squirrel went berserk in the first self-righteous church in a stupid little town of Pascagoula. It was a fight for survival that broke out in revival. Oh, Chester was dancing to that one. <laughs> Good going, Chester. Boy, he could really dance. That was Ray Stevens and the Mississippi Squirrel Revival. indicates everybody it is time for gun smoke time to go back down to front street in dodge city kansas circa 1874 walking along with marshal matt dillon keeping the law and he has his hands full tonight this is a john meston script and it's a good one this was originally broadcast back on february the 26th in 1955 and the name of the episode is Crack Up. And once you hear it, I think you'll understand the significance of that title. Here it comes. Gunsmoke. Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad. The transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America. And the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful. And a little lonely. <laughs> 
in. Come in, Marshal. Come in. Hello, Teeters. Uh, you got time to give me a haircut? You're the only customer I've had in an hour, Marshal. Uh-huh. You hang your coat and your gun belt right over there. I'll get things ready for you. Okay. Hey, I haven't seen you around town lately, Marshal. Well, I've been over in Abilene for a week. I just got back late last night. Oh, must come in on the Midnight Santa Fe, huh? Yeah, that's right. I wish I could get out of Dodge once in a while. Well, not the way I have to do it, you wouldn't. Maybe you're right, Marshal. Maybe you're right. Hey, this is a new chair you got, isn't it? Yes, sir. The finest barber's chair west of St. Louis. <laughs> that's pretty fancy. Here, try it. Ah. Comfortable? Well, I'll tell you after I find out if you've raised your prices to pay for it. Here, let me get this cloth over you. Here you are. Haircut's still a quarter, Marshal. What about shaves? <laughs> the price of a shave's gone up a dime, Marshal. A dime? Now, Marshal, you wouldn't stand in the way of progress for the sake of a dime, would you? Yeah, but who's progress? Hmm. Anyway, you don't need a shave, not today. <laughs> That's a good thing. See, Marshal... You know Mabel over at the Long Branch? Yeah. Well, last Wednesday night... Oh, take a chair, stranger. I'll be with you in a few minutes. Last Wednesday night... In a few minutes? Yeah, that's right. You're next. Right in line. Barber. What? I ain't next. Why, of course you are. Nobody's ahead of you. I said I ain't next. You mean you won't wait? That's right. Oh, sure you will. I work fast. It won't be longer than ten minutes at the most. Now, you just sit down. I'll be... I want to shave. I want to right now. You can cut his hair later. What? You heard me. Now, look, mister, you don't know who you're... Shut up, Teeters. Get out of that chair, mister. Take this sheet off of me, Teeters. All right. There. Okay, mister, I'm out. Then move. I want to sit down. You don't understand. I don't understand what. I didn't get out of that chair so as you could have it. You're going to be troublesome, ain't you? I am. And there isn't much you can do about it. Isn't there? You don't see very well, mister. What? I'm not wearing a gun. It's hanging on the wall over there. You going to shoot an unarmed man in front of a witness? Go get your gun. Put it on. No. Do it. You licked, mister. How are you going to make me do it? Shoot me? Put your gun on. I don't like killings, but if you don't turn around and walk out that door, I'm going to half kill you with my fists. Now get moving. All right. You got me this time, but next time you'll be wearing a gun. It'll be some different then. My goodness, Marshal, you took an awful chance. Who was he, Teeters? I never saw him before, but he might have killed you, Marshal. Ah, that would have been murder. You can get hung for murder. Now, quit shaking. Let's get this haircut over with. He won't be back. Hello, Chester. I was looking for you. Well, I've been right here in the office the past half hour. Yes, I know. I'm past the barbershop. Peters told me. And he told me how you handle that fellow, too. Oh, did he? Peters described him to me, Mr. Dillon. I know who he is. You do? 
He come here about a week ago, just after you went to Abilene. Oh, what's his name? Springer. Nate Springer. What? I sure that's right, Mr. Dillon. You were sure that was Nate Springer? I couldn't have been nobody else. Why? You said you don't know him? I've heard about him. You have? Where? All over. Nate Springer's got quite a reputation. Was a gunman, you mean? Yeah, he's a gunman. They say he's the most nerveless gunman that ever lived. He's all ice. Bad Masterson told me once that out in Arizona, a man got the drop on him and Springer started to laugh. The man asked him what he was laughing about and Springer said he'd never had before and he didn't want to die without seeing what it was like. Well, forevermore. What happened? It's kind of hard to shoot a man who's enjoying his first laugh. Yeah. My. Well, I'll be darned. What do you suppose he's doing in Dodge? Springer's a killer. A paid killer. That's all he's ever done anywhere. Then why don't you go arrest him? Well, he's not wanted that I know of. There are no circulars out on him. Well, but you can't wait till he kills somebody. No. And I can't put him in jail till he does. cup of coffee, Matt? Well, I'll take time, Doc. That's good. Here you are, then. Yeah. Ah, thank you. Well, things pretty wild up in Abilene? Well, it's still a camp with a hair on, Doc. Worse than Dodge? <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that. Then <laughs> I'll stay here. Oh, why? You're usually complaining about Dodge. I'm thinking about business, Matt. Business. What's there to do in a peaceful town? Oh, aside from delivering a baby now and then, setting a broken leg. <laughs> you know, sometimes you sound pretty bloodthirsty, Doc. I don't do the shooting, Matt. It's men like that Nate Springer you were telling me about. He, uh, he's sitting over there in the corner, Doc. He is? Well, where? There. Alone with his back to the wall. Oh. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, my, he looks like a killer. Already. He is. Yeah. You see how he keeps turning around? I mean, oh, it's like he thinks everybody in this room is his enemy. A man like that doesn't have friends. Oh, 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 well, he's getting up, man. He's... Oh, well, he's coming this way. Yeah. He hasn't finished his dinner. He better turn around, Doc. Yeah, okay. But you keep your eye on him. I don't like that man. Hey, you... Me? What was you staring at me for? I wasn't staring at you. No man stares at me without a reason. I don't like it. I want to know why you was doing it. Oh, now look here, mister. You're getting yourself all upset over nothing. Well, you ruined your dinner working yourself up this Tell way. me why you were staring at me. I'll put a hole in you. I'll do it. Well, you're awful jumpy for a big gunman. Tell me, I said. Hold it, Springer. <laughs> you getting into this, mister? I am. Who are you, anyway? Matt Dillon. Dillon? That's right. I knew I'd run into you sooner or later. Oh, why? My line of work, there's always some lawman wanting to interfere. Sure. And it'll happen here, Springer. You kill anybody. Fair fights, fair fighting. Not when you're paid to pick a fight with a man. Like I said, Marshal. 
I knew I'd run into you. Springer, when I find out who you're after, I can probably find out who's paying you. And I'll jail you and him both. You're going to lose a lot of sleep trying to find out, Marshal. I can stand it. You're the one that needs sleep, Springer, a lot of it. Without any bad dreams. Oh, well, looks like the man of ice is starting to melt, man. Yeah. You know, something's happening to him, Doc. And whatever it is, it isn't good. See you, Matt. Uh, sit down, if you got time. Oh, I don't have to go to work till after sundown. Good. Guess I might as well sit here and watch Front Street with you as do anything else. <laughs> Little air is good for you. Ah, uh, and a lot of it would be even better. Well, you ought to buy a horse, Kitty. Take a ride up the river every day or so. I'm too broke, Matt. Well, I'll lend you one. I got a little bay that's pretty gentle. Mm, imagine having more than one horse. <laughs> That's about all the government gives me, Kitty, a couple of cheap horses. I seen you riding your own. Well, I gotta keep him in shape in case I decide to quit. The day you quit, that horse will be as old as a man. <laughs> I hope you're right, Kitty. Hey, look, Matt. What? Walking down the middle of the street. Yeah, Springer. Now, who'd expect a man like Springer to have a little yellow dog? I don't know the dog's his, Kitty. Maybe he's just following him. He's right at his heel. I don't think Springer knows it. Oh, he's trying to sniff at him. <laughs> Matt, he shot him. Poor little dog, he didn't do anything. I'll be back, Kitty. Well, what do you want, Marshal? It's just a dog. Did you think he was going to bite you, Springer? He might have. How do I know? I don't know what it was. Could have been anything. Or anybody. I knew it wasn't a man. But you just said Who it. Who cares what I said? That dog shouldn't have been sniffing around. Not around you, that's for sure. Well? Why don't you go get a drink, Springer? I think you need one. I don't drink, Marshal. Never. Huh? You don't have any vices, do you? Marshal! Nothing. Go ahead. Matt, is he crazy or something? I don't know, Kitty. Well, he's the meanest man I ever saw. He didn't shoot that dog out of meanness. No? Why, then? He's jumpy. Well, if he's that jumpy, nobody need worry about him. He's more dangerous now than the way everybody tells me he used to be. What do you mean? Suppose instead of a dog sniffing at his heel, it had been a man who just happened to bump into him. I'd hate to be the man. He'd probably get killed. That's right. Then Springer shouldn't be carrying a gun, Matt. Yeah, I know. Well, why don't you take it off him or run him out of town? If I did that, whoever's paying him would just hire another gunman, Kitty. The only way to stop this killing is to find out who that is. Well, I hope you do before it's too late. <laughs> 
That night, I had Chester follow Springer around, keep an eye on him. But all he did was to buck the faro bank for a few hours and then go to bed earlier than the most respectable citizens. The next day, Chester went back to trailing him while I sat in the office and tried to figure a way to trap him into telling me who'd hired him. By mid-afternoon, I was no further than when I'd started. The only idea I had was to choke it out of him. Mr. Dillon? Yeah, what is it, Chester? That doggone Nate Springer, he almost shot a girl over there. What? A girl over at the Alpha Ganza. What do you mean, he almost shot her? Well, sir, he stayed in his room all morning till just before noon. Never mind that. What about the girl? That's what I'm getting to. And then just after noon, he went over to the Alpha Ganza and started gambling. He was sitting at a table in the corner with his back again one of them wooden windows. Uh-huh. Well, one of the girls that works here... Well, I guess she needed some air. So she slipped in behind Springer's chair and started pushing on that shutter. It's a wonder she got that far. He was raking in a pot. But when he heard her, I never seen a man move so fast, Mr. Dillon. Why, that poor girl near fainted the way he jumped around at her. She's lucky she didn't get shot. He had his six-gun stuck right in her face. He was within a hair of letting go of that hammer. And then when he saw who it was, oh, he started cussing her something fierce. Uh. Well, he's getting worse. He's going to kill somebody, sure, acting that way. Yeah. And it won't even be the one he come here to kill. Oh, fancy him about to shoot a woman. Well, I guess I can't wait any longer, Chester. What you going to do? I'm going to try to shame him first. That doesn't make him talking. I'm going to have to run him out of town. <laughs> help thinking all your friends who told you about Nate Springer was mighty poor judges. He's about the uncoolest gunman I ever saw. I agree about that, Chester. Uh, who told you about him last? I don't remember. Been two or three years. Well, maybe it was just a lot of rumor. You know how talk gets started sometimes. Now, Wyatt Earp was the first man who told me about him. Oh. Look, uh, when we get inside here, you go to the bar and stay there, huh? Yes, sir. There he is, Mr. Dillon. I see him. All right, sir. <laughs> Springer. Springer, come over here. My game, Marshal. Your game's over, Springer, for good. What does that mean? Get out of Dodge. What? If you've been paid in advance, you better give him his money back. You're not going to earn it. 
You're saying nine? It's an hour to sundown. You'll be out of town before dark. It's a long time since a man's talked to me like that, Marshal. How long has it been since a dog scared you into shooting him? Or since you drew on a woman, huh? You lost your nerve, Springer. You ain't gonna kill anybody. Shut up. Yeah, I'll shut up. If you tell me who hired you. No. Then who are you supposed to kill? I won't tell you. Okay, I didn't think you would. But you'll be out before dark, Springer. And don't ever come back. Ever. standing out here for? <laughs> Why aren't you inside with your feet on your desk the way you usually are? I'm waiting for somebody, Doc. Oh? Oh, you sound serious. It's Nate Springer. He's got about 20 minutes to leave town. Oh, is that so? Well, you finally had to come around here, then. He's still in the Alafraganza over there. If he doesn't come out before dark, I'm going in after him. Mm. Oh, uh-uh. here comes somebody, then. Huh? No, that's Chester. Oh, yes. Is there going to be a shooting, man? I doubt it, Doc. Springer's already backed down. Well, you never know. I'm going to get my things ready, just in case. Sure, Doc. Hey, Mr. Dillon. I thought I'd better come tell you. What, Chester? Springer's been bellied up at that bar for the last half hour. He has? He's been taking on one glass after another. Uh, Doc was right, you never know. What? He's getting ready to use his gun, Chester. And I'm going over and stop him. Hey, look. You just come out. Yeah. Hmm. He's headed this way. You'll stay here. you didn't drink, Springer. I never did before. Well, you started too late. You haven't time to find your man. You're leaving town. I've found him. What? You. You I'm going to kill. Who hired you, Springer? Let's draw, Marshal. I feel like it now. Let's draw. Don't be a fool, you're drunk. Not that drunk. I can kill you. And I'll be all right again. Now. No! You shouldn't have tried it, Springer. 
uh, had to. Why? Yuma prison, two years. I come out scared. Lost my nerve in that prison. Then why did you take this job? I, I had to. Who hired you, Springer? I did, Marshal. I hired me. I, I had to face somebody like you to get my nerve back. Don't you understand? Yeah. Yeah, I understand. It didn't work? No. And I paid everything I had for it. It it cost me everything in the world. Springer. Directed by Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Ray Kemper. Featured in the cast were John Daner and Harry Bartell. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Also enjoy Chesterfield's great radio shows. Harry Como sings all the top tunes on CBS Radio every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Jack Webb stars in Dragnet on Tuesday nights. Check your local listings. Remember, listen again next week for another transcribed story of the Western Frontier when Marshal Matt Dillon, Chester Proudfoot, Doc, and Kitty, together with all the other hard-living citizens of Dodge, will be with you once more. It's America growing west in the 1870s. It's drama. It's gun smoke. Brought to you by L&M Filters.
featured John Daner and Harry Bartell. The name of the episode was Crack Up. And obviously it was talking about a uh, mental situation, right? Very good. Very compelling episode of Gunsmoke. More Gunsmoke next week. We had a strange thing happen today, a moving thing. We have, I've often talked about our home here that is in the woods. We have a lot of woods around us. We have about four acres here, and there is one large oak tree that stands out quite a ways from our house that uh, is very defining. I bet this tree was a couple hundred years old. Huge, tall oak. Massive, massive trunk. And we could tell that the tree was kind of dying, but it would still produce leaves. Carol's mother, when she was alive and lived with us here, we had an apartment for her in our basement, and she would ha- she had a sliding door that looked out on this part of the woods, and it was a walkout basement, and she would see this beautiful oak tree and always commented that uh, when her time came, she wanted to be cremated and have her ashes spread around that oak tree, which is a request that we honored. Today, uh, we were working at our computers. Carol was uh, in one room and I was in another, and we were both kind of working diligently. And it was raining all day today, not pouring, but raining hard from time to time, but no lightning or thunder. And all of a sudden, we heard this tremendous crack, like it was a huge crack of thunder that hit a tree or something. It was just massive. I mean, it scared us to death. And I thought, well, that couldn't have been couldn't have been thunder because there was no other thunder and it was so close. Folks, we started looking around and that massive, massive oak tree had fallen over. Now, I don't know if it was just root rot and and the thing just got top heavy and just fall, fell over. Fortunately, it didn't fall toward the house. It fell parallel to the house. In fact, it's completely in the woods. It really didn't hurt any of our property. Anyway, it kind of made us emotional today because we're trying to sell the home, you know. It's trying time for us to move on, and this is just sort of another another symbol, <laughs> I guess. But uh, it really made us sad. This beautiful old tree we loved for years and years just, just fell over. Just fell over. There was a tall oak tree that loved the babbling brook And the babbling brook loved the mountain high And the mountain high loved the sky above The Creator looked down and saw everything was love Love, love, then uh, he took a bone And a piece of mud He made a man, then a woman To be flesh and blood Then along came the devil Up out of the ground He tempted woman and that spread sin all around, all around, all around. If she'd have left that apple on the apple tree, 
There'd be no tears and sorrow We'd live eternally And then along came man To burn the oak tree down And now the babbling brook Is a solid ground And the mountain high Don't stand so high And there's a cloud of smoke That covers up the clear blue sky There was a tall old tree There was a tall old tree There was a tall old tree Well, like I said, we've been in reflective moods tonight. And uh, here's another song, sort of an emotional song that I've always enjoyed. This was one of the ones that I bought and used to play a lot, but couldn't tell my friends because it was not cool to own Bobby Goldsboro tunes. but. I love the way he wrote music, and this is one of my favorite songs that he ever wrote. In the spring of my life, she came to me. She brought sunshine where winter winds had blown. Then I took her for my wife In the spring of my life And she brought me a joy I never known And the years they went by In the spring of my life And in summer She blessed me with a child Love continued to grow In the summer of my life And in every morning sun I saw her smile But in the autumn of my years I noticed the tears And I knew that our life was in the past Though I tried to pretend I knew it was the end Found 
on a snow-covered ground, and the sun cannot shine through cloudy skies, but I'm richer, you see, for the years she gave to me, and I'm content in the autumn of my That's going to kick things in the head for another week. As always, we are so very glad you stopped by. And uh, we ask you to come back and see us again in two weeks when we're going to do it all over again. This is Bob Bro, and I am so glad you met me.